studying behavioral economics at IDC Herzliya, which is located in Israel. And I think it could help to, to share how I got here. So for my undergrad, I studied economics and music at the University of Pennsylvania. And then afterwards, I worked in technology sales for seven years. And during my career, I had times of great success, but also times of failure. And looking back on those times of failure, I recognized that they could be attributed to one thing in particular. And that was a deficiency in emotional intelligence. I, I struggled to connect emotionally with my clients. And to correct myself, I started studying behavioral economics on my own, became fascinated with the topic, didn't understand why business professionals weren't being taught this at their companies, and felt that there was a real gap in, uh, in emotional intelligence in the professional world. So when COVID hit, I knew there was an opportunity to dedicate myself to the field and learn as much as possible. And that's how I'm here at IDC. Okay, so we're straight into the, the main motivation for doing this interview, which is uh, having an open and honest discussion about the, the best way for men to show vulnerability, which is to admit they have emotions. We could start with what your thoughts are about how emotions affect decision-making. Yes, definitely. And just a caveat to what you said, um, there is a stigma that men shouldn't be talking about emotions, especially in the United States. And I'm guessing you guys get that in Australia and the UK as well. I mean, we're, we're grown up saying like men, real men don't cry, right? Uh, real men um, aren't supposed to show vulnerability. When in fact, uh, if you've listened to any of Brene Brown's uh, TED Talks or read her research, vulnerability, people really respect vulnerability, whether you're a male or a female. And if you, vulnerability is human. So you're showing your humanity when you're vulnerable. And rather than thinking you're being weak, you're actually, um, you're actually being yourself and people really respect that. I just want to go back to one of the things that you said you are studying at the moment, emotional intelligence and how you can teach that. What are some of the quick things or what are some of the methodologies that people do to teach emotional intelligence? Yes. Okay. So let's, let's just, let's take this back to investing and tie it all together because they're all related. So there's a couple of things. And I think the, the, the market is a perfect way to train yourself emotionally. So there one, um, probably the most important concept in behavioral economics and decision-making is that we judge reality based on relative terms. So for example, uh, there's a great study done by Matsumoto. And what he did is he measured how people were smiling on the Olympic podium. Who's the happiest, right? You have the gold medalist, the silver medalist, and then the bronze medalist. Now, in objective terms, the gold medalist should be the happiest, followed by the silver medalist and the bronze medalist. However, what he found is that the bronze medalist smiles a lot more than the silver medalist and is overall happier. Now that doesn't make any sense, but when you think about it, the bronze medalist uh, is really happy to win a medal. And the silver medalist didn't win silver, she lost gold. So she's comparing herself to the gold medalist while the bronze medalist is comparing herself to everyone who didn't win a medal. And 
that is why the bronze is happier. And we tend to do this all the time. We're always comparing things objectively. And when it comes to investing, uh, it's very, very applicable because let's say you make a hundred dollar profit with uh, a stock. Money is fungible. You're supposed to treat a hundred dollars the same as a hundred dollars, no matter where it came from. So are, are you guys familiar with um, the term emotional accounting? Oh, actually, I want to ask you one quick question about the, the yeah. I, I understand the rationale of why a bronze medalist is smiling more than a silver medalist. But what about the gold medalist? They, that person won the whole thing. So they should be smiling more than the silver and potentially more than the bronze as well. Oh, yeah. The gold medalist is smiling the most. Uh, <laughs> so, so if that wasn't clear, I apologize. But yes, the gold medalist smiles the most, followed by the bronze, followed by the silver. So it's more of a comparison between the bronze and silver where the study gets interesting. So, uh, so yeah, so back to emotional accounting. Basically, what uh, Jonathan Lavov found, um, he's done a lot of research on uh, emotional accounting. And humans don't think about $100 in objective terms. And what I mean by that is if I win $100 or if I gain $100 on a stock, I'm going to treat that $100 differently than if I earned it working for it or if I had found it on the street. And uh, what I encourage investors to do is learn that there, there's a bias there learn about emotional accounting and try as much as possible to think about that $100 profit as $100 anywhere else. And you end up thinking a lot more critically about how you want to spend that $100 in the market because a lot of people look at stock profits as basically going to a casino and betting on red and winning a lot of money, right? Uh, but in reality, it's real money and you should treat it as such. If I was to find $100 in the street, I would think that I would use that to buy a treat for myself or someone, whereas $100 that I earned would more likely go into investments or into some sort of grocery bill or something. Um, so I, I do think it's true, but why do you need to categorize them as the same $100? Yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily be the same. I it just you have to think about it that this is a bias and you're probably going to treat the $100 differently. So it's not necessarily treat them the same. Just be aware that this exists because I think uh, people tend to spend in the stock market um, a little capriciously and they should uh, think more about what they're investing because it is real money just even though just because it lives on a computer and Robinhood or any trading platform lets you trade something in five seconds doesn't mean it's not a hundred dollars. Could we do something practical to make it more concrete? It's starting to sound like we're discovering another one of these effects. One of the main effects that we've discovered so far in the podcast is variously called hyperbolic discounting or delay discounting or quasi-hyperbolic discounting, if you want to get really technical. One of the ways to address the effect of hyperbolic discounting is to use episodic future thinking. You can essentially pull the future that's being hyperbolically discounted, if that's the way to put it, into the present, it becomes more concrete and you're likely therefore to behave in the present in a way that recognizes the incredible gains you will get in the far distant future. So is there a way to practically address the effect you're talking about? I'm gonna say not really. And that is unfortunate. 
depending on the culture you're brought up in, you're going to be very present bias. Would I rather want $100 now or $120 in six months? You know, I, I'm going to choose $100 now. Uh, we're very present oriented and that's the culture we're brought up in. There's actually an excellent study done by Sorry, Keith Chan. That's a 20% return in six months. Annualized, that's 40%. That's pretty good return. Well, that's good that you're thinking things in relative terms, right? The 20% increase, as we talked about before. However, it is only $20 in objective terms. In my opinion, $20 <laughs> waiting six months is probably not, but a 20% increase is uh, great. So yes, I think with larger money, you're absolutely right. But um, in terms of this, uh, this exercise, I don't think a lot of people would want to wait six months for that, for that extra $20. <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. I'll tell you my method. So listeners and you've probably seen my disgustingly truculent tweets about my revolve trade and mm. how I'm up 300%. I can't believe it, but it's, what can I say? It's a validation of maybe the effect of doing this podcast in terms of managing my behavior, but also value investing in the framework that we learned from Professor Kenneth Marshall. But one way that I'm trying to make it real is to put photos of the Porsche that I can buy with the current gains. Yeah, and I think that's, um, I want to touch upon that. I think that's a really good idea. What you're doing is changing your environment. So you can't, you can't do really anything about the present bias, is, is my opinion. You are, everyone, depending on the culture you, you're brought up in, you're going to be present biased. However, you can change your environment. So you can have that Porsche up there and you're actually looking at it while you're um, investing and it reminds you of patients, right? I had actually had a friend who's like analyzing all these companies and was like, Nick, like, you know, what do you look for in the companies? Uh, you know, I have all these spreadsheets and things like, what do you think the most important thing is? And I'm like, patience, not the spreadsheets, not the analytics, but strict patience. And Wendy Wood does a lot of work on this. We humans tend to overestimate our willpower. So what I've done is I don't trade on my mobile phone completely um, remove that uh, capability because if I have easy access to trading, there is a better chance that I'm going to buy and sell at the wrong time. When if I'm just patient, then I probably will see a lot better returns, which I have. Also, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Daniel Crosby, but um, he does a lot of work in behavioral investing. He's our hero. That's why we started the podcast. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. I'm sure he'll be really psyched to hear that. He referred us to Joy LeRae, one of our interviewees. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. That's why we Great. stole the name of his book for our podcast. Do, do, you have the, do you have the book up, uh, you know, maybe like a poster of him while you guys are investing or something like that? <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, what he says is the market goes down 55% of the time. The market goes up 45% of the time. So if you're living on a day-to-day -day basis and looking at your portfolio every single day, right, because you have easy access to it, pretty chance you're going to let your emotions take over, get anxious and buy and sell at the wrong times. So that's why I think it's so important to change your environment, prevent those kind of things that is ha um, from happening. And Crosby actually says that there is a negative correlation between profits and the amount you check your portfolio. So the more you check your portfolio, the less profits you're going to have. You can't trust your own willpower. You have to change your environment. Love it. Great advice. <laughs> the, the interesting thing about it is there's so many forces trying to 
manipulate your environment and you know, your Robin Hood accounts, your advertising material and everything, which dictate to a large degree your environment. Um, it's um, a lot of advertising and marketing and uh, movies even um, set up a, a situation for people to, to be, be manipulated, I think. Yeah, and you're going into um, another behavioral economics concept that we call availability bias, which means that the more available something is in your mind, you overestimate its probability. So when you hear all this negative news on terrorism and homicide, you think it's a lot more prevalent when in fact, um, a very small percent of deaths, at least in the United States, happen because of homicide or terrorism. Uh, but that, that works the same way in investing. Right. They the, the investment news that you see about all these different cryptocurrencies and negative news on companies, uh, those tend to be more available. One, you think you need to react now. Like you're like, oh, my God, I just saw that news. Like I need to do something about it. No, just relax. Wait, see how the market reacts. Have some patience. Um, the second thing is you there's a lot of hurting behavior involved. So when a stock goes down know that people are panicking and selling off and it's probably going down a lot more than um, it should be just because of people's um, other people's emotions are getting the better of them. So those are actually great times to buy. So recently Airbnb, I think went down 30%. Etsy went down around 30%. Uh, when those types of companies have big dips like that, uh, I frame it differently in my mind. I don't say, wow, those are big losses. I say, wow, those are opportunities to buy more. Of very reputable companies and and i take those actions hmm. okay so that that relates to another item on our our agenda today you wanted to talk about market uncertainty and you mentioned a cloud study by uri simonson in 2007 yeah yes sorry some yeah sorry simonson basically we underestimate the power of the environment we think we have a lot more control over our lives than we actually do. And yes, a lot of people find that scary or you can find that liberating. Hey, like, you know, you don't have to make a million decisions a day, like let the world happen as it should. Because the reality is you don't have much power over um, what happens uh, in terms of other people's behavior. So what, for example, what this study um, discussed is it's so interesting. What, uh, what he did is he analyzed um, university uh, acceptances. And what he found is that you are much more likely to get accepted into a university um, if you're a social candidate on a sunnier day. And if you're a nerdier <laughs> candidate, you're very studious, you are more likely to get into the university on a cloudy day. The weather affects the market. There is tons of research as well done on trading on a sunny day versus trading on a cloudy day. Like all these things affect the market. So if something dips down 5%, maybe it's not the company, maybe it's just cloudy out. And just being aware of all these different things is just like, hey, like I'm just gonna let it happen. I'm going to sit here and be patient and let the market do as it does and not beat myself up for a day or two of losses because I can't control it anyway. I'm in it for the long game. And when I say long game, that could be like six months, a year, two years, depending on the stock, you know, not, not too long. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that reminds me of the study about judges and how you don't want to be sentenced 
just before lunch when the judge is hungry because that clouds their judgment as well. Here we've got the legal system and academia, specifically sentencing and the decision whether or not to let a student come to, to a university. Two really important decisions in, in society about what happens to people being affected by these flippant little effects. It makes me take the world a little bit less seriously. That's and it, take it less seriously. I think that's the reaction that people need to have rather than be scared. Like, oh, my God, I don't have any control over this of anything that happens. Be like, hey, I'm going to take this a little less seriously. Like that's the that's a reaction that I encourage people to have. I train sales teams on how to apply behavioral economics. And I'm like, you make a cold call and it didn't go well. Maybe that person just didn't eat breakfast. Maybe that person didn't have the, you know, maybe that person didn't have coffee this morning. Like don't beat yourself up over it because you can't control other people's reactions. I was just wondering uh, with the cloud and, and this sunny day impact, has there been any quantification of the amount of impact that that has? If you were to set up an algorithm to trade shares or just buy an index, for example, would it have a, an extra 2% profit each year? Or how can we use this? Yeah, I mean, there's some, <laughs> I like the way you think. I mean, there are <laughs> many, there are studies out there that have the data and, and show what it changes based on the weather. I think one thing is that retail investing is so accessible now that people are trading in so many different countries and the weather is different everywhere. So my guess is gonna be very hard to do, uh, but the data is out there. Uh, me, I'm not, you know, I'm not creating formulas on my end, right? That seems like more of your wheelhouse, uh, but um, certainly uh, it is a factor in the stock market. I like the name and you could set up a fund called the Sun Chasers or something like that. <laughs> following the I sun around the world. Your geographic location is a good one for that, Ben. You, you should um, set your fund up on the Sunshine Coast and trade from Noosa. Mm. Well, yeah, you have to, um, it depends who's trading on that market. So another big concept in behavioral economics is outcome bias. Too many times we are judging success based on the outcome. But as we just discussed, the outcome can be influenced by so many different factors. It's, it's almost not fair. So I think a lot of people get down on themselves when, when they're losing in a stock, especially immediately, right? When they're not being patient and it'll probably go up in uh, you know, a few months. Uh, but um, they're judging themselves on uh, the outcome and that's not fair. And I think it gets people down. And when people get down and let their emotions take over, they make mistakes. A few books, actually, one on um, statistics and probability where you really want to focus on the process that you go through to get to a result as opposed to what the end result is. And so if you are consistent enough in applying a, an appropriate process, um, then you'll eventually, you know, with enough spins of the wheel, enough time uh, achieve the results that you want. Um, I think it's a really, really important thing because people can focus on the outcome of one event and beat themselves up. But if you do have the right methodology, it's like the, the approach that we use to value shares. You know, we make sure we go through that four or five step process of understanding the company, looking at its historicals and so forth. Um, as long as you're doing that, you should eventually win overall yeah and i think dollar cost averaging has become uh 
popular nowadays, right? You buy the same stock a certain amount every week, every two weeks, and you make it more mechanical and take the, the outcome and the emotions out of it because you're doing this and you have a narrow focus. Uh, my, uh, my methodology and my concept um, for the market and advice to people is that, listen, you can't control the market. You can only control how you react to the changes. And that's where emotional mm. intelligence and emotional management comes into play. I strongly recommend meditation. I meditate every day as well. Um, I listen to Sam Harris's Waking Up app. Uh, I listen to uh, the Aubrey I, Marcus podcast frequently. Yes, it's excellent. Um, what is the Waking Up app? Great. So it is uh, hmm. a mobile application. There's daily meditations, but it also goes into the theories behind meditation. So I started on Headspace and it was a while ago. So maybe they changed the app. But I just felt it was a, basically um, like a stress ball. You know, it was like a way to be calm for the moment. But I was like, why am I meditating? Why does meditation work? And Sam Harris goes into uh, the actual psychology behind it and maybe this illusion of free will. And uh, it's, it's very interesting. And um, yes, meditation has certainly uh, helped me. It, regarding loss aversion and the disposition effect, I mean, these are things I study. It also helps to go to school for these things and just realize how, how prevalent they are. But the disposition effect is interesting. So people tend to hold on to their losses. So when Stein, you'll, see, you'll hear Danny Kahneman talk about this as well. Um, I, I've uploaded several podcasts of his on my behavioral economics playlist. Um, so if people want to check that out, uh, they can hear some of it. He talks about uh, that people are afraid to sell their losses. Why? Because you recognize the loss. You admit that you made a mistake and you also regret the decision. And that is very emotional. That, that's emotionally impactful to you. So if there's a stock that's losing and losing, and you know what? You weren't that sure about the company in the beginning. Sell it. Don't be afraid to sell it. Like... It's the right thing to do. Free up some cash and move on and invest in something else. I want to use this as a, a chance to try and get, get this demon off my back. Okay, let's dig in. Um, and there's, a, there's actually a connection with Israel. On the Australian Stock Exchange, there's actually a number of Israeli businesses that have listed on the ASX, I think simply because it's a larger market. And one that came out was Apps Village as, a, as an IPO. And I was really keen on them because they basically have this one-click process to convert a Facebook page that's like a promotional page for a business into mm -hmm. an app. And I thought, you know, how efficient, you know, you get the Skinner box that uh, your typical app is to habituate people to your products and business. Um, I, I thought it would be a, you know, a killer business and they make a lot of money, but they're down 50%. I think they're down maybe 60% and they've mm -hmm. stayed down as opposed to my revolve trade, which was, halved because of coronaviruses and, and is now up 300% since I got in. This, this one hasn't recovered at all. Um, and I, I confess right here in front of everyone that it's exactly because <laughs> of the thing that said Nick, because I feel like an idiot. And, I don't and you're, not even, I you're not even focused on the one where you made 300%, right? Yes. Like you would have been better off selling this and buying more of the one that dipped uh, 50%. But I mean, listen, that's going to happen. Like don't, don't beat yourself up over it. Recognize the loss. Sell it if you don't think it's going to go up. Did you buy at the IPO, by the way, or did you? Um, uh, no, it was just after it was listed. 
Um, yeah, so that's also tough because yeah. that's where you get a lot of um, emotions flaring when something IPOs because everyone's so excited and they and they think they need to buy right now. But the reality is traditionally IPOs, you know, they, they go up for a little bit and then eventually go down like 15, 20% at some point. So you're better off waiting. I don't see any, when I want to buy a stock, I'm usually like, okay, I'll wait a week. Let's see what happens. Like I force myself to wait a week um, and almost always it's worked out in uh, as a benefit. Yeah. Just to like see if I really want to buy that. Okay, another one is letting runners run and reference points. Could you comment a bit on those two items? Yeah, so the, the reference point we talked about, that is um, the Olympic example and the silver medalist being less happy than the bronze medalist. So I, in terms of the stock market, we're thinking all in terms of percentages, right? It went up 20%, it went up 25%. Uh, we tend not to think of uh, the money in objective terms. Rather, it went up $100, it went up $200. Uh, so those are things that need to be taken into consideration um, with, uh, with the stock market. You know, every, everything is real money. So um, that's, uh, that's in terms of the reference points. Uh, what, what was the other topic, Will? Uh, I'm just wondering how, how you let runners run. Oh, yes. Okay. So letting runners run, right? We, when something doubles or triples or something, you're like, okay, I got to cut my losses and uh, sell some because it can't get that much better. But that's not necessarily true. That's in your mind. Chances are, though, if it went two to three times really quickly, like you probably should take some of your profits off. But also think about things objectively. Like, yes, the, the stock might make more money, but how bad am I going to feel if the stock goes down? Right, like ask yourself these questions on an emotional level, not just about money. Um, like if I buy this, if I sell this stock and it goes up, am I gonna feel terrible? You know, like you're, you're, at, you're, you're, you're normally talking about things in dollars and cents, but like, what about you? What about your emotions? You're the one living the life. Uh, so ask yourself, like, how are you gonna react if it goes up, if it goes down? Um, so Warren Buffett says, let your runners run, right? Like uh, if it's a good company and there's no reason to sell it, then don't sell it, have, uh, have enough patience. Um, one thing, uh, so one concrete example is, uh, is Neo. So I got very lucky. And when I was working um, about two years ago, my manager came in and said, hey, like Neo's really cheap right now, like you should buy it. Um, and it was at $1.80. And I was like, I didn't really know much about the company, but I was like, why not? So I invested in Neo. And that was complete luck. Now, the fact that I held on to it for a year and a half, I don't, I don't think that's luck. That's me being patient and not selling it, even though there was no movement on the stock. And suddenly it goes up 2000%. I was like, okay, I mean, like, why, why sell it? So, um, so those things happen if you, have, uh, if you have patience. But I mean, you know, the, the, the luck versus skill, and I think there's a lot more luck in the market, but again, if you have patience, that's where the skill comes into play. So how are you feeling about that runner now? Say that again? How are you feeling about that runner now? So um, when something increases 2,000%, I'm going to be weary. <laughs> and I sold most of it. I think I sold all of it at this point. But now I'm, I'm, I invest a lot more in XPeng. Uh, in Blink, which is a electric uh, charging company. So I do like the EV space. I also invested in Volkswagen, um, which, uh, which is making really nice electric vehicle cars. So Xpeng, I bought at its peak 
right? At like $55 or something like that. And then it went down to $26, right? And yeah, it sucks. It hurts. But you know what I did, Will? Oh, I, bought bought more. <laughs> I bought more. I bought more $26. I said, great. Xpeng went down 50%. Awesome. I think everyone's afraid I'm going to buy more. And now it's at $40 again. So like, I don't know, like that, those are framing things differently in your mind. So Katie Milkman's done a lot of work on temptation bundling. And it stems from the idea that we don't have much willpower, right? If we want to exercise, there needs to be something else. I mean, yes, you can be internally motivated and everything, but a lot of people need um, sor some sort of other kick to, uh, to get them to do things. So she did studies on how do we get people to exercise more? And it turns out if people like to read Harry Potter books or like to watch um, a specific Netflix episode, they make it so they only can watch that Netflix episode when they're working out. Right. So they're 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 doing a positive thing while doing something that they kind of don't want to do, but they're bundling it together. So that can work in the market as well. Uh, maybe if um, maybe if like, uh, hey, if I wait a week to buy this, I'm going to treat myself to this. Or uh, there's definitely ways to change your environment uh, and also your passions and the things you like to do and bundle them together. Now, it's personal for everyone. Um, you would, now that people know about the concept, it's up to them to, to mix and match. And the book Atomic Cabots by James Clear goes into uh, these kind of methods as well. I wanted to just try to extract from you some comments on a final couple of studies that you, you mentioned in the agenda. Mm -hmm. So okay. you, under emotional account, you mentioned Jonathan uh, Lavard from 2009. And then maybe... Uh, we have some comments about the present bias um, and the Keith Chen study from 2013. Yeah, so we, we mentioned the Jonathan Lavov study already. That is the, um, the fact that $100 is different than $100 depending on where you came from, right? We don't treat, the, we don't treat money objectively. So we did talk about that study. Uh, okay. We also talked so about present, we did talk about present bias. Um, we talked about how we want rewards in the future versus now. But the Keith Chen study is excellent because what he talks about is depending on the culture you grew up in, they have different languages, right? Different cultures have different languages. And apparently if you speak in a futureless language, a language that doesn't necessarily separate the present and the future, like it rains tomorrow rather than it will rain tomorrow. There are languages that do that. German is the example he gives. Uh, you actually think the future is less far away. You associate the future with the present and you are likely to save more money. You are likely to be more patient because when the future seems so far away, it's like, oh, like I need it now because I can't wait that long. So the language you speak also determines uh, how present biased you are and why I wanted to bring that up. And I talked about like, uh, can we control our present bias, right? And, you, and, I, and my answer was kind of no, because it has a lot to do with the culture you brought up in. However, if you go to other countries, speak different languages, see how other people um, are present biased, right? Like speaking to monks and observe their behaviors, that is the way to expand your mind and, and potentially conquer some of this present bias that we all have. Oops switched our focus to behavioral fintech and how to convert all of these things that guests like you are saying into an mm -hmm. app. 
So now I'm thinking, wow, we could have a component of the app that helps people to change the way they speak and potentially removes some of the hyperbolic discounting. So can you say again how language can help do that? There was, it was as though you were talking about the future without the, the tense. So how, how you could personally um, change this? How, how do Germans yeah. do it? Because I learned, uh, Ben, you know German. How, how do you talk about it will rain? What do you say? I'll give you an example in Japanese. In Japanese, if you were going to say it is raining, you'd say ameka futeru. But if you were going to say tomorrow it will rain, you will say the same thing, but you'll just add the word tomorrow. So ashita ameka futeru. Ameka furu. Um, but that sounds similar to English. Is that does that have the effect that you're talking about, Nick? Well, he said. I think Ben said it is raining tomorrow, right? So he's doing it present progressive in Japanese, but he's just adding the word tomorrow. Is that correct? Yeah. So there's not the yeah will. So it will rain tomorrow. They don't say that. They say it, it is raining tomorrow. And yeah, that, and I think the, that I think that's a good example. If you get the nuance there, and to take Japan as an example, um, they are high savers. <laughs> I mean, all all this stuff is nuts. Like that's the crazy. Language you speak the culture you're brought up in, all of this background. So we just need to be a little accepting of ourselves because we really didn't have that much. Uh, we didn't have that much say in how present biased we are. Like our culture, where we were brought up, who our parents are all these things affect who we are. And once we accept that and we can actually be ourselves, then that is how we can start thinking about, okay, well, how can I be more patient? That's really powerful because in basically this is the, well, the four out of the past five interviews, if we count yesterday's one that hasn't yet been published, um, have basically, so including yours, have basically been about the issue of um, hyperbolic discounting. Not to mention, of course, the second interview with Tom, the clinical psych who, who brought all these subjects up. Uh, so along with future episodic thinking, yeah. so we can use future episodic thinking, or we can also learn German or Japanese. <laughs> or we... the text in Japanese. Uh, I mean, yeah, there's, there's just different ways uh, of framing things in your mind. Framing is a very powerful tool in behavioral economics, and you can frame things differently in your mind. Uh, like how you say something where we all have internal dialogue to each other. So maybe lose, use the word will less, try to speak a little more in, in the present. Um, these are things that I'm experimenting with. Uh, so I don't say I have a silver bullet to this yet, um, but it's certainly, I think awareness is, is, is a huge part. I know people just keep talking about awareness and, and how that's supposed to be meaningful and matter. And it does just being aware of all these things. And that's where meditation also comes into play, like knowing your thoughts. So like, I'll have a thought like, oh, I need to go check my phone or I need to do this. Like, you don't need to do that. Live in the present. And you actually have to force yourself not to do it. Um, and, and that's where that training takes okay. place. But, but you see that in uh, that manipulation in advertising all the time in the narrative that they sell things. They'll, they'll sell you something and it'll only be available for a limited amount of time. You, you have to act now to, to be able to buy this product. Um, otherwise, the price is going to increase. And, and 
it's always that focus on the now and limiting the amount of time and decision-making um, that a person has. Yeah, and uh, I mean, Cialdini talks about one of his principles is scarcity. So companies are doing this all the time, saying, hey, you have to act now. Again, markets and uh, the news talks about different different things that you think that increase people's anxiety and feel like they need to act now. But being aware of that is is very important. Um, As with all of the interviews, I feel like we're just starting. <laughs> I know, I know. Well, we could definitely do. Hopefully, in the the part two, I'll have um, some some better answers to the to solving present bias. Yeah, I mean, so to me, to sum up, you've talked extensively about emotion management, but as impactful for me was the importance of managing how we think about time. And it's incredible the effect of removing the word will, as uncomfortable as that makes me feel, because that's my nickname, <laughs> as a simple technique and as witnessed in entire cultures through their language to reduce the effect of hyperbolic discounting. That's incredible. And that opens up a whole other topic, which is the effect of culture on money management. Yes. And that, that has been studied and it is a fascinating topic. Um, we've got more to talk about, but we'll have to leave it till next time. Um, Nick, thanks so much for uh, joining us this time. It was so nice being here. Um, I just want to give a, a quick shout out to uh, the investing club um, at IDC Herzliya. They're doing some great work. Uh, the, you know, the, the finance industry in, um, in Israel is not the same as the finance industry in New York, right? Where everything is, there's like a, uh, it's very um, structured on how you get into finance and they're doing some great things here about uh, um, getting people into the, the finance workforce and teaching them about uh, the financial instruments here. If people want to follow you or get in touch, do you want to share any information? Yeah, I'd say the two main things are Twitter. So find me at Behavior2020. I believe that's how us three got connected. Um, and then also check out the Behavioral Economics uh, Spotify playlist. Um, there are tons of interviews on there. I've listened to each one. Yes, I listen to a lot of podcasts. <laughs>